Welcome to Tigers in Translation, the podcast that tells Princeton student stories in their own voices. We hope to build community around language at Princeton and spark conversations about our experiences. I'm Tyler, and today we'll hear from Amanda. I remember the soft yellow walls, the ever-lingering scent of Crayola finger paint, the oversized Cosmic Sans posters with the words, I love to learn, plastered at the top. I remember the squeaking of blue plastic chairs, the mismatching of extra scented Mr. Sketch markers, the mystery of the seemingly always empty candy jar. I remember the room so clearly, from the first time I walked in with my glow-in-the-dark Hello Kitty backpack and matching Velcro sneakers, to the time I bade my goodbyes and went across town with my chin held high as a self-absorbed sixth grader. This was Mrs. Robertson's ESOL classroom, the room where I learned to sing my ABCs, count to ten, and eventually speak the words, I hate myself. Growing up, my parents were only ever strict about one thing. My siblings and I were to never speak a word of English in our household. Whether kneeling in prayer at Chukimkam or buying groceries at the Publix down the street, we could only ever converse to one another in the language of our forebears, in the language of Deju. Deju We, or Deju for short, is one of the many varieties of spoken language in China. Although my parents were raised in the rural outskirts of Saigon, donning Aoyai and responding to policemen with Bang Tung Ai, Bang, Yes, sir, thank you. We were never Vietnamese. We are Dechu Nang, Dechu people. We carry ourselves and our language with pride, and we never, ever forget who we are or where we came from. Yet it was on that first day of ESOL, when that final bell rang and all the other Chestnut Springs kids climbed aboard the bright yellow school bus that ran through our neighborhood, that I began to doubt who I was. Standing there, in the middle of Mrs. Robertson's classroom during the first parent-teacher conference of the year, with my mother's trembling fingers hidden beneath the pockets of her coat, was when I truly started to reject my language and my heritage. The confused look on Mrs. Robertson's face as she said with overemphasized syllables, So you're Chinese, but you don't speak Chinese? While she held my and my mother's gazes in expectant reply, it was the first time in my life I wished so desperately to be white. Every second of that conference, as the burning blush of embarrassment stained my cheeks while I tried to explain myself to Mrs. Robertson, to tell her in my broken kindergarten English that even though my parents spoke Vietnamese, I couldn't, that I only ever learned how to converse in Deju, which is not the same as Mandarin, and that the Vietnamese-translated letter she tried to print out for my parents might as well be in English because they never learned how to read in the first place, was a second closer towards hating myself. For six years, from kindergarten all the way to fifth grade, I dreaded every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I hated being pulled from normal class to go to Mrs. Robertson's special one, hated sitting on the rainbow carpet trying to glean whatever phonics lesson Mrs. Robertson pointed to on the projector, hated sitting away from the two other Mandarin speakers because my Chinese was fake and weird and not like theirs. 
So in those nights of frustration, of self-loathing and shame, I took it upon myself to learn the verses of Marietta, Georgia, to memorize the Eurocentric words of a nation where whiteness and English were better, and to break my parents' sacred rule of speaking Dechu only. From that day forth, I promised myself that I would never have to endure Mrs. Robertson's look of disgust ever again because my English would be so American people would overlook the blackness of my hair and the darkness of my eyes. I promised myself that whenever someone asked, do you speak Chinese? I would now know the answer to that question. No. The hatred that fueled me to spend my weekends reading the fundamentals of English grammar, to look at contempt at my Mandarin-speaking classmates whose language abilities, unlike mine, were cool and acceptable, and to turn away from the disappointed eyes of my parents as I told them to speak English was a bitter realization of my ineptitude. The double standards between real, mainstream Mandarin Chinese and Teju bilingualism and the inherited correlation between English fluency and future success were distinctions that illuminated to six-year-old me that no matter the prideful boasts of multilingual and multi-ethnic diversity, freedom of speech in the United States did not equate to equality of speech. Instead, the steadfast power of English and whiteness and even Mandarin over Deju taught me early on to crave the blonde-haired, blue-eyed perfection of America and to spend my nights lying in bed with tear-stained eyes, silently praying to God that my parents would magically wake up knowing how to fully read and write in English. To me, learning English became a way for me to change my identity, to prove to the world that I, too, was not some pitiful, gullible, impoverished third-world child living in colonial society, but an American girl, a white girl, who not only grew up speaking English and wearing blue jeans, but who never once knew what it felt like to justify herself. That's where every day I spent walking through the red-bricked building of Kincaid Elementary and out the blue steel doors of Dodge and Middle, I made sure everyone saw me as the girl I so earnestly dreamed to be. The girl whose parents were American-accented businessmen who lived in a five-bedroom house who would never be associated with the four-letter acronym ESOL. That girl, the one who didn't speak Dechu, who didn't spend long afternoons at her parents' doctor's appointments, filling out tax forms or worrying if there was enough money to pay the rent. It was all a game, a performance for my friends and classmates where I pretended to be someone I was not, a member of the English-speaking middle-class hierarchy. No one ever caught my lie because sometimes I even believed it myself. It wasn't until July 18th, 2015, when my grandmother left her village home in Binyung, 9,267 miles away, to come to the United States for the very first time, that I began to look at what I had done both to myself and to my family. For 14 years, I shut out the language and culture my family worked so hard to preserve and let my peers and teachers dictate who I could and could not be. For over a decade, whether I knew it or not, I accepted the practices of self-contempt and used its premises to idolize English, Mandarin, and every other dominant language I believed to be superior to Dechu. I became obsessed 
was studying my diction, making sure there was not a single trace of foreign accent that could mark me as an outsider until I could look at myself eye to eye and no longer recognize the girl who stared blankly back at me. But standing there in Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport, looking at my grandmother for the very first time, I remembered the kid I used to be, hearing her speak the pure, untainted language of my childhood as she patted my cheeks and told me I looked just like her when she was my age, made me realize that this woman, though she knew not one word of English, crossed oceans and lived through two civil wars just so that I could be there, standing in that busy airport with a book in my hand and shoes on my feet, living the privileged life she never so dared dream for herself. Her words, as she sat squeezed between my brother and me in the back seat of Dad's 95 Nissan pickup, telling me of the years she spent living on the streets of Jelong, trading in her wedding ring to send my dad far, far away from the front lines of the Viet Cong army, made me realize what a fool I'd been. The frustrated tug of tears behind my eyes as my tongue, from years of disuse, forgot how to form the words I so badly wanted her to hear, made me understand that in rejecting my language, I rejected everything this woman stood for. The stark discrimination I showed my culture as I casted the Deju words from my mind and filled their ranks with Anglo-sounding ones made me realize I forgot exactly who I was and where I came from. So now, five years later, I am relearning the language of my past. With each day, each word, and each conversation, I am remembering the person I used to be. When my classmates tell me my language sounds like I'm having a stroke, and the customer service representative tells my parents to speak English, you chinks, I make sure to speak a little louder and a little clearer, because we are Dechunang, Dechu people. We carry ourselves and our language with pride, and we never, ever forget who we are or where we came from. sharing your story Amanda could I ask you a few more questions about your story of course okay so the first question is what motivated you to tell the story I think what motivated me was when I was younger I used to not say anything like at all I used to be so ashamed of speaking up for myself Mm -hmm. and I used to be that person that just let other people jump in for me and I let them say like she doesn't talk, she's shy, she doesn't know anything. Mm. And when you listen to that, you really start to believe it and internalize that. And I think sharing my story, writing it out on paper, it was definitely not easy at all. I think it was one of the hardest things I've had to write, just opening yourself out there and like putting everything out there. But I think in doing that, I was able to regain a piece of myself and really just stand up for that girl who let other people speak for her and really show everyone like, heck yeah, 
I have a voice, I can speak, and I'm going to use it. So the second question is, how has coming to Princeton changed your relationship with language? Um, I think that it definitely has changed my relationship with language. I think coming into Princeton, I gained a new vocabulary and a new community. And back in my hometown, so I live in Atlanta, and I never even heard of the word like first generation low income. Like that wasn't part of my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. But being in Princeton with a community that supports you, that accepts who you are and really embraces that identity has really shown me like how powerful it is to have a community that stands behind you and how you shouldn't be afraid of who you are and how that actually strengthens your identity and what you do. That's incredible that you were able to find that kind of community on campus. I'm glad. So then this leads to my last question. Um, How has being back home in quarantine changed your relationship with language? I think in some ways, even though it's difficult, being with my family, especially since my grandma is staying with me, um, has really allowed me to connect with my culture in a more intimate way and be able to converse with my grandma and relearn the language of my past. It's been a hard journey trying to recover who I was before, but being with people that support you and who really understand and don't blame you for what you did to yourself is just amazing to be able to recuperate that part of yourself. So I think quarantine in itself is a little blessing for me to be able to learn and relearn my past. Thank you again, Amanda, for sharing your story. Of course, thank you so much. Tigers in Translation is supported by the Rapid Response Magic Project of the Princeton University Humanities Council. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you have a story you want to share? You can reach our team at tigersintranslation at gmail.com. Our production team includes Amanda Bond, Tyler Bennett, Londi Hernandez, Mariam Camel, Annika Mascara, and Tanvi Nabonapati. Our faculty advisor is Dr. Sean Gonzalez. Thanks for listening.